not that interested in who's getting married to who, uh, who's getting divorced for the sixth time, and uh, what so-and-so looks like when they're not on the movie set, or what party they're going to. I, I just don't care. Uh, now, there's obviously a market for that, because for as long as I can remember, grocery stores have been putting those colorful tabloids in there at the checkout aisle, and you can't help but notice them. It's almost impossible to watch the news at night with, or to scroll through social media without hearing someone talking about some juicy piece of celebrity drama going on. But honestly, at this point in my life, it's just all white noise to me. I just don't see how those things are relevant to my life. And frankly, I'm really content to let them live out their lives of glamour as long as I can live out mine here. For many people in our culture, my, my feelings about celebrity life probably sum up about the way that they feel about the gospel. They struggle to see the relevance of Jesus and the cross because they struggle to see, and because they struggle to see the relevance of such things for their lives here and now, they struggle really to see the gospel as something of much importance for themselves. The gospel of Jesus Christ can hardly be compared to the gossip of pop culture, but that doesn't change the fact that one of the major challenges that the church faces today is that we are trying to reach a world that is growing increasingly ambivalent to the gospel. People want to be entertained, not convicted. And with the realization, and with the, with the relativization of right and wrong, the relevance of the news of Jesus' death and resurrection seems like some to be a message that's intended for someone else. The ground that we have been called to work grows increasingly hard. And some churches have fallen prey to the idea that we've got to tweak the message that we share to make it relevant to people. I'm afraid that such shortcuts rarely bear true gospel fruit. In fact, while those efforts may be well intended, I think that they actually do tremendous harm to the mission of the church and the message that we have been called to proclaim. As ambassadors of Christ, we've been called to a kingdom work, to reason with people and to exhort them, but most of all, we've been called to proclaim a message and to let God work through that message. That is what we find the Apostle Peter doing here in Acts chapter 2, proclaiming the fulfillment of God's salvation promises in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. Now this morning, uh, we're moving along in our time in the book of Acts. Uh, we're moving from the substance of what pre Peter actually preached to look at the result of what happened in the crowd. As we do so, I think we gain some important insights into the way that God powerfully works in people's hearts to save them. So, if you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Once again, we're in Acts chapter 2. We'll be reading from verse 37 through verse 41. This is the word of the Lord. Now, when they, that is the crowd, heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. 
And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. Well, there is no work that quite displays God's power, His excellence, His love, His righteousness, His grace, or His glory, quite like when He saves a sinner. When God saves a person, He rescues them from death. He declares them to be righteous. He makes them a new creature. He adopts them in as one of his own children. He unites them to his son. He dwells in them by his spirit. He makes them holy and he assigns to them a vast inheritance of eternal life. While when we think of Pentecost, we tend to focus on the noise of that heavenly wind or the various tongues that the Spirit gave to the church to speak in. The real miracle of the day of Pentecost was that 3,000 people were saved through the preaching of the gospel. What an incredible thing it must have been to have been in Jerusalem on that day. Not just to witness God fulfill His promise to pour out His Spirit and to demonstrate in a very tangible way that Jesus is both Lord and Christ, but also to see Him exalted as the Savior of all these people, even the very ones who had rejected Him and crucified Him. It was on this day that God the Father exalted His only begotten Son, fulfilling Jesus' own words as He prayed on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What's incredible to me, and I hope what's amazing to you as well, is that God accomplished this mighty work through the simple proclamation of a message. No one was saved at Pentecost because of John's personal speaking ability. He was a rough fisherman. No one was saved simply because they heard this sound of wind or because they witnessed a miracle they couldn't otherwise explain. They were saved because the arrow of God's word found its mark in their hearts. And the seed that was planted through the preaching of this gospel, that Jesus is king, bore the fruit of repentance and faith. Now this passage gives us the opportunity to really consider three things. First, it helps us to understand the order of salvation, or the pattern of how God works through the gospel in people's hearts to save them. Uh, second, it teaches us about human, about human responsibility towards this message. And third, it encourages us as God's people to trust in the sufficiency of this gospel to save souls. And therefore, I think it encourages us to proclaim it with great expectation. Put together, we get our main idea for this morning, which is this. Salvation is a divine work that demands a human response which happens through the proclamation of the Word of God. Salvation is a divine work that demands a human response which happens through the proclamation of the Word of God. 
And what we're going to do in our time this morning is we're going to break each one of those three parts down, starting with salvation as a divine work. Now, in Luke chapter 19, we're told about a man named Zacchaeus who was a tax collector. Zacchaeus worked for the Roman authorities. He was seen by most as a traitor to his people because of the way he colluded with the Roman authorities for his own benefit. Like most tax collectors, his cooperation with the Romans made him a rich man. He could charge people what he wanted, scoop off the top, and as long as he made sure the Romans got what they demanded, he was good. No one could say anything to him. He had Roman muscle behind him. So you can see why he and the other tax collectors were so despised. He chose money over his own flesh and blood. Now one day, Luke tells us, that Jesus came through Zacchaeus' town. He had heard all the stories of what Jesus was doing and saying, and he decided he wanted to see Jesus for himself. But so did the rest of the town. And so there was a large crowd surrounding Jesus as he's made his way through. Luke tells us that though Zacchaeus was a rich man, he was also a wee little man. And so he couldn't see Jesus on account of the crowd. In desperation, Luke tells us that he ran ahead, climbed a tree where Jesus was about to pass, and hoped that he could get a view of him. To his surprise, though, he got more than a passing view of the Christ. Since Luke tells us that when Jesus came to the place where the tree was, he stopped, looked up, and without any other introduction said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Jesus' decision to eat with Zacchaeus created a huge stir. How could Jesus go and willingly associate himself with a sinner like this man, the people asked themselves. But while the crowd grumbled, Zacchaeus' own heart was filled with joy. He received Jesus with joy into his house and declared, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, which is very likely, I will restore it fourfold. Jesus' presence had a profound impact on Zacchaeus. It led him to repentance. And as Zacchaeus said these words to Jesus, Jesus replied to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. God the Father sent his Son into the world to be its Savior. Jesus did not come simply to make salvation possible. He came to make salvation a reality. There is not one person among us who can declare that they are righteous in God's sight because of anything that they have done. Ephesians 2 clearly declares that we were dead in our trespasses and sins without any hope in ourselves, but that God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved, Paul tells us, through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. As we look at Acts 2, we can see very clearly that salvation is a divine work. And we can see this in two distinct ways. 
First, as we, as we have seen in Peter's sermon, it is God's work in and through Christ which saves us. God has accomplished salvation through Jesus' work on the cross. He has exalted Jesus as Lord and Christ. It was on that cross that Jesus paid uh, the penalty for our sin and where he saved his people from the wrath that is coming on the world in judgment. Second, salvation is a divine work in the sense that God is the one who actually applies that work to us through the power of the Holy Spirit and the preaching of the word. Salvation is a divine work, not only in the sense that it is God's work which objectively secures our salvation, but it is also his work in the sense that he works subjectively in each one of the lives of his people to bring them from death to life. That is what excludes any one of us from taking credit for our salvation. It's not just that we couldn't pay for our sin, it's that God comes and gets us. We are saved through faith in Christ. But the faith we have, we have received because God is at work in us to apply that work of Christ to us in the first place. Here in Acts chapter 2, verse 37 through 41, we get an idea of how God actually carries out that work of salvation in people's lives. First, we see that God was at work in the crowd to convict them of sin. God convicted them of their sin. Look with me at verse 37. Now we're told by Luke, Now when they heard this, that is, when they heard this message that God had made Jesus of Nazareth, this man whom they had crucified, both Lord and Christ. He says, When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What changed? In a little bit over a month and a half since the crowd, the same crowd, put Jesus to death leading up to this moment of conviction. I mean, really, what changed? How do you go from being this mob screaming for a man to die to this group of people who's cut to the heart and saying, brothers, what shall we do? How are these people not stoning Peter and the apostles right now? What caused this radical shift? Well, the difference is that now that Christ had finished his work on earth and ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit had arrived. And the Holy Spirit is now doing what Jesus said he was going to do. John 17, uh, verse 7 through 11, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will no longer see me. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So as Peter preached the gospel of Jesus' death, resurrection, and exaltation, the Holy Spirit was at work piercing people's hearts with the sharp reality of what they had done. They had crucified the Christ. They had rejected God's chosen one. They had put him to death. Now we looked at last week about how all this happened according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. But that in no way removes the guilt or the shame of this sin from the crowd or from us. 
since Christ died for their transgressions and for ours. For the first time, this crowd is coming face to face with the reality of what they had done. They saw their sin for the ugly, grotesque, poisonous act of rebellion that it was, and their hearts were pierced. They were cut to the quick because they realized not only the gravity of what they had done, but they also realized the fact that they could do nothing to make it right. It was more than they could bear. And so they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? You ever been caught in a place like that where something you have done can't be taken back? And you realize to your own desperation, I'm at their mercy. I deserve this. That is where the crowd is right now. Before we can rightly respond to the good news of the gospel, God's work of salvation, it stands that our own hearts must be pierced with the conviction of the reality that we have sinned, that we have rebelled, that we have assaulted the glory of a holy God who made us, our own creator. Only those who are sick know that they need a doctor. Only those who have been brought to the end of themselves feel their need for a savior. The dead don't know that they're sitting in a casket. They don't smell their own rot. They don't feel the weight of earth that has been piled over their vault. But a person who has been awakened in such a state, oh, they feel all of that. They know the panic and the deep despair of helplessness. They know they need a Savior. Jesus says in Luke 5, Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So it stands that before we can breathe the sweet air of liberty in Christ, the Spirit must awaken us to the fact that we are prisoners. He must convict our hearts. The human heart loves darkness because the darkness conceals the ugly uncleanness of our sin. We will not ask for clean robes to be given to us unless first the Spirit shines the light of Christ on us to expose our need for that. Consequently, conviction is the first step of God's work in a sinner's heart. Now the second step that we see in God's work of salvation is this call to repentance and faith. Now there is a big, big difference between simply feeling sorrowful over one's sin and the sort of true conviction that comes from God, which leads to repentance and faith. When the crowd asked Peter, what shall we do? He told them what to do. He said, repent, and he, which is a call to return from sin and to turn to God. Now, this might seem really simple, right? We're talking about the crucifixion of the Christ. Are they just going to remove that with a few words? Well, Peter's actually calling the crowd to do something really profound here. He's not calling them to just say that they're sorry. He's calling them to repentance. Repentance is different than regret. Repentance takes action. The word that Peter uses here uh, actually describes a 180-degree turn. It means abandoning a former way of living and embracing a new life, one which is received through allegiance to the very king whom they crucified. 
Now, you may notice that Peter doesn't actually say, repent and believe here. He actually says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Uh, This is a call for people to turn from their sins, to turn to Christ, and to see themselves aligned with the very one they put to death. Contrary to what some have read into this verse, Peter was not saying that baptism as a rite has any power to save anyone. That idea runs counter to everything we read in the Bible. Baptism itself saves no one. We are saved by the one in whose name we are called to be baptized. That doesn't mean, however, that the rite is unimportant, though. Baptism is an open declaration of faith in Jesus. It's a declaration of allegiance. Just like a jersey identifies a person as part of a team when they run out onto the field, baptism identifies us as a people who have been united to Christ by faith. Baptism is so intimately tied to faith in Christ in the New Testament that it's not uncommon to find Paul or Peter using it really as a way of talking about our union with Jesus. It's just shorthand. It's assumed. For example, in Romans 6, Paul says, Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Which leads us to see the third step of God's work and of salvation in a person's life, and that is life in the Spirit. When God saves a person, he convicts them of their sin so that they turn to be aligned with Christ as their king. And then he equips them for this new life with the promised gift of the Holy Spirit. In the second part of verse 38, Peter tells the people to repent, to be baptized in the name of Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And then he says, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm led to understand that the gift of the Holy Spirit, as Peter speaks of here, is not the sort of filling of the Spirit which we saw at the beginning of chapter 2. What, what I think Peter has in mind here is the ongoing indwelling of the Spirit in the lives of believers, in which God shapes and molds them into the image of Christ. The gift of the Holy Spirit is the fulfillment of God's promise to pour out His Spirit on all His people to make them holy to make them into a living, breathing temple. Salvation is not simply about how God saves us from hell. It's also about how God makes us a new creature. He does that work through the Holy Spirit who applies Jesus' work on the cross to us. In this sense, we we are saved. That is, we are justified in God's sight, declared righteous. We are also being saved. We are being sanctified or made holy. And we will be saved when we are glorified with him in heaven. Salvation is a work of God from top to bottom. He doesn't just declare us righteous and then expect us to live on our own power. Instead, he gives us his very spirit to equip us for the work that he has set aside and called us to do. In this way, we can say with Paul, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. There is nothing we can do, there's nothing we can take credit for in our salvation. There's nothing we can boast about. 
All is Christ. All is God's. It is a work of God in us and for us. But that does not exclude us from the way that we have been called by God to respond to that work. Which leads us to our second point this morning. The gospel demands a response from us. Now Peter makes it very clear that salvation is a divine work, something God has accomplished for us, something he accomplishes in us, something which he alone deserves credit for. He also indicates that this work demands a response from us. We are not robots. We are not passive in responding rightly to the gospel of grace. There's a responsibility placed on us as a fruit of the work God is doing in us. Now, the relationship between God's work and our response is complex. And because of that, there's a lot of confusion and debate in Christian circles over what that relationship is exactly. But what I want you to see from Peter's sermon and his response to the crowd, that there are at least two principles at work in this. And that is, we see in verse 21, that everyone who calls on the name, everyone who calls on the Lord shall be saved. And that those who call on the Lord are saved because he first called them to himself. In verse 39. From the biblical point of view, both of these things are true. As John MacArthur helpfully points out, a biblical view of salvation does not exclude either human responsibility or divine sovereignty, but allows them to remain in tension. We must, not, we must resist the attempt to harmonize what scripture does not content in the knowledge that there is no ultimate contradiction in God's mind. Now, clearly, there was no contradiction between God's effectual calling and the responsibility of the people who were in this crowd to, to respond to that call accordingly. Since, after Peter announces that this promise is for them and for their children and for everyone who is far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself, Luke tells us that Peter continued to bear witness to them about Jesus and to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Now understanding that both of these key principles are true, it is helpful, I think, for us to consider how God works in us and and, and what we are called to do in response to that work. How can it be that all whom the Lord calls to himself, both both those whom he called from this crowd, those whom we see he called from the rest of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even Gentiles throughout the Roman Empire and the furthest reaches of the world, even us, must also listen to these worlds and so save ourselves from God's judgment. Well, to put it simply, in God's effectual calling, he awakens our hearts to our sin through conviction. He gives us a heart of repentance. He gives us a heart of faith which loves him and desires to do his will. And then he enacts in us a faith and a confidence in Christ that will not disappoint. Our response to repent, to believe, and to follow Christ as our king is a fruit that is produced by his saving grace as it works in us. Now the point of the doctrine of election is not to make people ask themselves, well, how do I know if I'm one of God's chosen ones? How do I know if God's calling me? That is not the point of that doctrine. It is not for us to stand back and try to determine if we're in one group or another. The call to believe the gospel goes out to all, just as the love of God has been poured out on all through Jesus. 
But we also understand it takes a work of God to awaken a person to their need for salvation. And it takes a work of God to give them a heart of faith. The evidence that He is at work in us is that He is awakening us through conviction. The evidence is in how He leads us to repentance and faith. And the evidence is in how He confirms the hope of eternal life to us through the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in us. I love what Charles... I've got two Charles Spurgeon quotes in here. (laughs) I love what the pastor Charles Spurgeon talks about when he talks about this doctrine in particular. And I know I've quoted it to a couple of you. But he asks simply, Friend, do you find yourself to be a sinner? If so, take heart. Because Christ died to save you. Now Peter clearly indicates that God's work in us demands a response from us. That's why he witnessed to and exhorted the crowd, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Not telling them to go find a way to get saved, but to believe the message that had been preached to them to repent and to follow Christ. He knew as he preached that God was at work through the message of the gospel in the hearts of these men. And so he pled with them to repent and to be joined with Christ through faith to receive this gift. Faith is a response to God's work. And it is a result of his work. The question we must ask ourselves is whether or not we know ourselves to be sinners against God. And if we do, then it is good news since Jesus came to save sinners. We receive that salvation through repentance and faith in him, for it's through faith that we receive this righteousness. And that brings us to our third point this morning. That salvation happens through the proclamation of the gospel. There's a struggle in the church today. Maybe it's always been there, but it's a struggle in particular to show people that this message, the message of the gospel, is in fact relevant for their lives. The thing is, when we proclaim the message that Peter proclaimed to this crowd on Pentecost, its relevance for everyone's life is clearly apparent because we have all sinned against the glory of God. As I mentioned, here's my second Charles Spurgeon quote. Spurgeon regularly urged his listeners to trust in the ability of God's word to work. The word of God, he explained, can take care of itself and will do so if we preach it and cease defending it. See you that lion? They have caged him for his preservation, shut him up behind iron bars to secure him from his foes. See how a band of armed men have gathered together to protect the lion. What a clatter they make with their swords and spears. These mighty men are intent on defending a lion. Oh, fools and slow of heart, open the door. Let the Lord of the forest come forth free. Who will dare to encounter him? What does he want with your guardian care? Let the pure gospel go forth in all its lion-like majesty, and it will soon clear its own way and ease itself of its adversaries. Wow, that's a powerful image. How do we release that line with all this majesty? How, how can we expect this message to bear fruit in people's lives? Well, we proclaim it, realizing that God in his sovereignty has determined to use the proclamation of this word as the main means by which salvation happens. 
It's astonishing to think that after preaching a sermon like this, a sermon in which Peter basically lays the cross at these people's feet and says, you did this, that 3,000 people came to faith. Uh, They received Peter's word. They showed us that they were repentant and that they really believed that Jesus was in fact the risen Christ. They demonstrated that by being baptized, by embracing the shame of Christ's cross. And so the church went from consisting from about 120 people to over 3,000 in a mere day. All this happened as a result of God's work manifested in these people as they responded to the message of the gospel as it was preached to them. Now Pentecost stands out here as a unique and wonderful day. We aren't expected to think that whenever and wherever the gospel is preached, that we're always going to see these explosive results. God works in different ways at different times. And there's nothing that demonstrates the power of the kingdom of God like this. The more normative pattern of the New Testament, though, is a slow, methodical growth over time. And God is glorified in both. Still, it is exciting to read about this, isn't it? And it should make us think about what God has called us to do as both individual witnesses in our community and as a local church as we proclaim this same good news to a city and to a county and to a state and to a nation and to a world we've been called to love. This is what we must do. First, as we share this gospel, we must speak to sin. We must speak to sin. One one of the most uncomfortable things about sharing the gospel with someone has got to be telling people that they are sinners and that they deserve God's wrath in hell. It is offensive to tell someone that. It is. You want to see someone's eyes get big? Tell them about their eternal destiny unless something changes. It's it's hard to do that because we want to be liked. We don't want to insult people. But it doesn't change the reality of this message. If you want to win friends and influence people, you just don't say things like that. But before people can come into the light, they've got to know that they're in the darkness. Twice, Peter tells the crowd, you crucified the Christ. If if, if he had skipped over that sin, there would have been no explanation for why Christ had to die, and it would not have been apparent why these people needed to repent and believe the gospel. Now, our job is not to rail at people to try and make them feel guilty about all that they've done. Thunder and lightning are impressive things to behold, but it's the rain that falls on the earth that makes seeds grow and bear fruit. And Growing up in the South, I have been to lots of revivals. I have been to tent meetings where fiery preachers boomed about the wrath of God and where people flocked to the front. And yet it was rare to see lasting, true repentance and faith. Maybe that's because people ran to the front more out of a fear of the preacher than they did out of a a fear for a holy God. The power of our witness about sin and salvation is in the words that we speak and in the work of the Spirit through us. It is not your job to instill guilt in people by glaring at them with eyes that are angry or with shouts of anger. Conviction, according to Jesus, is the work of the Holy Spirit, not the church. Our job as witnesses is to shine the light of Christ into people's hearts where it will expose them to the reality of their sin. 
and then to proclaim to them that they too, just as we are, are sinners in needs in need of grace. We are beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. Second, we must call people to repentance and faith. It is not enough to be sorrowful over sin, though sin is certainly something to be sorrowful about. The intention of godly conviction is to lead to godly repentance and faith. The end goal of this is life. We aim the light of the gospel into the darkness. We shine it like a spotlight on people's hearts, not because we like pointing out that they're bound in sin, but we aim the gospel at the darkness because it's through that light that people are set free. We know that we once were like them, but then our eyes were opened by this same truth, and we want them to be free too. The love of Christ compels us to love them this way. I, I have no greater joy than seeing someone go from being hardened towards God and towards the gospel and then watching them get really confronted with the beauty and the glory of Christ in such a way that they are transformed by his grace and their life goes from being something they live for themselves to being something that they now live for God and to see them live for the first time. There is nothing better than that. I love watching them flourish in this relationship with Christ, being filled with his joy and the knowledge of him. There, there is nothing better than that. It's worth the risk of being ridiculed. It's worth the risk of being called an intolerant person or a bigot or a hater because that person's soul is infinitely more valuable than you being liked. Brothers and sisters, let's follow Peter's lead and speak this message boldly for the sake of Christ, sharing the same love that he had on the world. Third, we must let the light of Christ shine through what we do as much as we let it shine through what we say. Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Actions speak louder than words. The quickest way to unhinge a message you speak is to make your actions not match up with it. The message we proclaim with our mouths must be lived out through our hands and our feet. You know, it is the highlight of my week to get to stand before you up here and to preach from God's word. I love this. I love getting to mine the riches of God's word throughout the week and then to bring them polished to you, these precious gems on a Sunday morning. But if you look at the qualifications of a pastor, especially when you consider that pastors and elders are supposed to be living examples to the flock, the majority of my work really is living before you and before others in such a way that my works match my words. The same is true for each and every one of you. Don't leave your faith at the door as you leave this place. Pour the fresh fuel of this gospel on your hearts and let your words and your works burn bright before others as you live in this relationship with God. Letting your light shine before men means that the gospel isn't just a message you speak. It's a message that defines how you live. A message that you call others to live by as well. Don't stop with your words. Complete those words with acts. Now when this crowd heard Peter's message, they knew what he said was true. They felt the pain of their conviction. 
They saw the works of the Spirit, and they heard the word of God proclaimed, and salvation came to the house of Israel the way it came to the house of Zacchaeus. May God see fit to do the same through us and our, where he has placed us as an embassy of his kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, we have considered some magnificent things about the way you work in people's lives. And we praise you for you are the God who saves. We will glory in you for you are our redeemer. At the same time, Father, we know that this great work you do in us demands a response from us. But Father, my prayer this morning is that if there is anyone here who has not repented and trusted Jesus as their Savior, that you would pierce their own heart with conviction so that they know that this message is true and that there is only one Savior who can save them. Father, I pray that even as you do that, that the Spirit would exalt Christ by bringing life and light into the darkness. And Father, I pray for your church this morning. I pray for those of us who have believed this message, who are walking with Christ that in hearing this, you would pour fresh fuel on the fire of our passion for him. And then in doing so, that the world would see the light of the light of Christ in us and so glorify you. Father, we pray that you would keep and sustain us to this end until you see fit to send your son back to rescue his flock. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.